Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago out in Montana, I learned an important lesson about historical perspective. We were shooting a television show about Custer's last stand. That's how we titled the project, how we scripted it. It's how we considered the whole story from beginning to end. Retelling the tragic events at the Battle of Little Bighorn in June 1876 as an ill-conceived debacle, a logistical failure for the U.S. 7th Cavalry, and certainly for Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, that charismatic and controversial officer who led more than 200 of his men to their deaths on that hillside. Custer always had a way of grabbing people's attention, and he still does. This tale of doom, of poor judgment and hubris, told for 150 years in so many books and movies, is more often than not focused on the man himself and his terribly flawed choices. But late in our schedule, we traveled an hour east to a site known as Deer Medicine Rocks, a formation of sandstone boulders poised majestically on a tall bluff on privately held ranch land. It was here at this location, so sacred to Native peoples still, where two weeks prior to the battle, Lakota holy man Sitting Bull had his prophetic vision. For two days and nights, he danced, dehydrated, exhausted, cutting himself sacrificially until finally collapsing. Later, he reported in that trance-like state, he witnessed soldiers tumbling from the sky like grasshoppers. He interpreted this vision to mean a great victory would be won against the invading Americans. It's embarrassing to admit, humbling, that this was the first time I'd really considered these particular events from the opposing perspective, from the Native American viewpoint. Hearing about Sitting Bull on the site where he stood, I had my own vision. It wasn't a prophecy, it was just a realization that I had been tumbling myself through history, carrying forth a version of these infamous events most comfortable to myself, to my orientation on the world. But the time had finally come to take a new and closer look. Hi, everyone, and welcome to American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman. Glad you're here. If you stand upon the spacious lands of Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, you will immediately realize why Montana calls itself Big Sky Country. If you're like most visitors there, if you're like me, you are entirely out of your element. But this presents an opportunity for imagination to summon some sense of what it would be like to live and thrive there as indigenous tribes 
Lakota, Cheyenne, Crow, and many others nomadically did for hundreds of years before Europeans arrived, before the white man came. These open, rolling grasslands stretched between horizons, shaped by the weather and wind, and defined by streams and rivers running through them, like the Little Bighorn River that passes a short distance from the monument lending it its name. Nowadays, of course, there are roads and towns and structures, but you can still feel the place. And if you shift your perspective, you can also sense how alien this environment would have been to the U.S. 7th Cavalry, riding on horseback and marching into conflict on wide open ground, offering little or no shelter or cover in the fight. Those men, those officers and troopers, most of whom are still interred there, their remains marked by simple headstones scattered upon the hill where they died. These feelings are valuable impressions if one is to understand both sides of a very confusing and famously tragic event that occurred here beneath these breathtaking skies against this awesome backdrop of nature. And with us today to explore all this and more is Dr. Lindsay Stallins Marshall, Assistant Professor of History at Illinois State University and author of Teaching Us to Forget, The Wars of Westward Expansion, U.S. History, Education, and Public Memory, 1870 to 1995. Welcome, Professor. Hello, Lindsay. Nice to have you on American History Hit. Thanks so much for having me. In this story, we should start here. Names really matter. So let's start with some nomenclature. Little Bighorn National Monument was a new name for this historic site back in 1991. It was changed under the first Bush administration. Previously, it was Custer Battlefield National Monument, named in 1946. And before that, National Cemetery of Custer's Battlefield Reservation, 1877. And in a way, that's what we're discussing today, how the focus of this epic event has shifted from being all about the last stand of George Custer to the broader tale about the times and the, the numerous personalities involved on both sides of this conflict. You've written a book about this phenomenon, this sort of redefinition of westward expansion. Little Bighorn's right in the sweet spot of this. It is. And even calling it Little Bighorn is shifting yet again, right? Because that is the settler name for the place. but. The name that Lakota Nation, Northern Cheyenne, Arapaho peoples who were involved in the event called it was the Greasy Grass. Yes. And so you're even sort of privileging a point of view when you say Little Bighorn versus Greasy Grass. Exactly. What was that? It's a beautiful name, actually, Greasy Grass, but what does it refer to? There's a lot of marshland near it, mm. like a lot of shallow water where there's long grass and it, it looks greasy. Yeah. But even that would be an English translation of probably yes. a much more beautiful and vowel sort of name, I imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's first understand the basics of this story. Why the 7th Cavalry under George Custer was caught on that hillside. The battle was part of a much larger campaign and a long string of events. Let's talk about the context. It's really a two-year story, isn't it, starting in 1874? It is, and it goes before then as well. The trajectory of military history in this period, you know, we're coming out of the Civil War, and you have this massive war machine that has been engaged in brutal conflict spreading across half the continent for the past, you know, five years. And then all of a sudden, you have the war ending, you have a former Confederacy to deal with, and you have the need to redirect the nation's attention. And so in the midst of the war, President Lincoln issues the Pacific Railroad Act, the Homestead Act, right? The vision is turning west, that the west is going to somehow be the redemption of this sectional crisis that we found ourselves in and nearly destroyed us. 
Sherman is in charge of the War Department at this time. And, you know, all these Civil War generals and officers turn their attention to the planes. And inconveniently for that plan, the U.S. government had already negotiated a number of treaties with many indigenous nations, uh, promising them the land where they lived that would be free from settlement and they would get to stay. One of those places was what was called the Great Sioux Reservation which was created through a series of treaties. And the most recent treaty for this battle was the Treaty of Fort Laramie, 1868. But gold was discovered in the Black Hills, which had been promised to Lakota Nation and the rest of Ochedi Shakoin for time. When gold is discovered, people want to go get it. And the U.S. government is put in the awkward position of either enforcing its own law and taking miners and settlers out of that area, or which they decided to do breaking their own treaty law and going in against indigenous nations. This is probably many cases of breaking treaties and changing the goalposts, if you will. But this one really sticks out for me. I was really surprised when I did the story years and years ago how extreme this story really was. 1851, first of all, we should probably really define these areas. We're talking about what is today Montana and Wyoming, with, of course, other areas down south from there. But this is the sort of general parameters of things at this point. And over in what is Wyoming is what you're talking about, the Black Hills. It's sort of the western stretch of Wyoming there, Rapid City Mm -hmm. leading up to that. And that was really promised in that early treaty to the Lakota tribes and others. There was a whole bunch of meetings that took place in Fort Laramie, which is actually over in Montana. And at that time, this was promised for time and memoriam, as you say, it would be the lands that these tribes could exist on and could still be nomadic upon. They would be using these lands as they always had. That was before the buffalo disappeared and before, as you say, gold is discovered. So 1874, gold is discovered in the Black Hills, precious sacred lands for those indigenous people. Yes, Custer comes in with troops sent by Grant. 1874, this is a really bad time. The economy has crashed. There's one of these for a gold rush to happen, which becomes Deadwood and all of that stuff, is really, really rich potential for the U.S. government. So they're willing to break a treaty to get there. And one of those officers that's sent up there is Custer. It absolutely is. And, you know, Custer's expedition is what verified the presence of gold in the Black Hills Mm. and sparked a rush in 1874, which then created the crisis that would precipitate this huge battle. But even before then, Custer has been angling since the Civil War to recreate himself in the image of what he would have called a, quote, Indian fighter. Hmm. He was involved in a massacre at the Washita River down in Kansas in 1868, uh, November of hmm. 1868, against Southern Cheyenne people who were under the leadership of a man named Black Kettle, and they were trying to get to the reservation to separate themselves from some raiding that was going on, and Custer attacked the encampment, targeted particularly women and children in order to, quote, quickly subdue yeah. this group that did not need to be subdued. They were not part of these fights. And Custer wrote a book called My Life on the Plains after that, where he talked about his exploits because he really hadn't done much in the Civil War necessarily. He wasn't terribly involved. I mean, he was an officer, but he he wasn't instrumental in any way. And he was looking to make his reputation. And so crafting himself as a warrior on the plains was really his path to fame and political appointment. He was trying to get in in the Grant administration. We just got to spend a moment on this guy. (laughs) I mean, the picture in everyone's mind that has been, you know, passed down through movies and so forth.
forth is not that far from the truth. I mean, this guy, he had a very, very big ego. You know, he dressed in a very unique sort of way. He yes. liked the whole style of this buckskin warrior guy. He wore these gloves that had stars on them. I mean, it's almost comical to talk about, but that's really who we're talking about here, right? Yeah, I mean, he was definitely a self-promoter and more so than many of his fellow officers, though not all of them. <laughs> this was a chance for them to just kind of stake out new territory for themselves career-wise, let alone what might come to pass as a result of, you know, spoils of, of victory and so forth. And certainly gold was a big chance for them to do this. So 1874 takes place. That whole thing happens. Word gets around. I mean, word passes anyway through all the channels of native tribes and so forth. And speaking of the battle that he is known for earlier than that, 1868, they know about that. Mm -hmm. They know about this guy named Custer. And he has quite a reputation in this part of the world. Let's talk about these tribes. I mean, again, I mentioned nomenclature. It's really important to understand that this is a big organization of different populations, correct? Absolutely. So the three main groups who are involved in the actual battle in 1876 are Lakota Nation, Northern Cheyenne Nation, and Arapaho Nation. But the movement of settlers west, the military attention to the west, has shaken up this entire region. So a lot of different nations are involved. They are being displaced. These waves of violence that are preceding the settler invasion are impacting them. Uh, Ned Blackhawk wrote a beautiful book about this called uh, Violence Over the Land, about mm -hmm. that kind of wave that preceded seeds settlement and disrupts longstanding relationships or intensifies longstanding conflicts. We had Ned Blackhawk on the show, by the way. Oh, wonderful. Earlier in our run, it was really interesting to talk to him about that very thing. Each one of these nations, some more than others, have unique relationships to the U.S. government, right? I mean, right. they're known, they have different reputations, they have different kinds of cooperation and not. I mean, the Crow Nation, for example, has a very close relationship with the U.S. government mm -hmm. in terms of the treaties and so forth. Can you explain how that politics works? Yeah, I mean, it's really complicated, obviously, and it's complicated on purpose. The U.S., one thing that I think the way we learn history in schools kind of fails to teach us is that the power dynamics between indigenous nations in the United States change very dramatically over time. And in this period, there's kind of the notion that the U.S. had a far more sophisticated military, and so it's kind of inevitable that it just rolls over the plains. And that was just not in no way true. Indigenous nations were incredibly powerful militarily, knew the land better, used it better. And so the U.S. government's strategy really since the beginning had been to try to negotiate individual agreements with individual nations and kind of use them against each other. Likewise, nations that have longstanding conflicts or longstanding alliances understand the shifting power dynamic and try to wield that right back. It's a very dynamic situation with a lot of moving parts. I imagine this was a system conjured and perfected, I guess, in the Eastern conflicts down in Florida and so forth that had been going on for decades, if not a century earlier. And so you have the Crow, which is closer to the U.S. in terms of relationship versus the Lakota, which is for many years prior to 1876 has been involved in Plains Wars, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They're kind of the movie character, if you want. They're the warrior nation who is really against us and fabulously amazing. I have to stop for a moment. And just, <laughs> the incredible visuals involved 
in all of this just always blow my mind. You know, right. what it must have been like either side, you know, to see these soldiers coming from this foreign land back east, suddenly, you know, building forts and so forth. But then for these American soldiers to see these guys out there, I mean, what a time this must have been of alien nations meeting each other. It's, it's extraordinary. Right. It's now a cliche because we've seen so many movies about this and John Wayne type storytelling, but it can't take away from the fact that this is an extraordinary cultural moment. A lot of veterans write about that in letters home yeah. and diaries and journals that they kept about how extraordinary it was <laughs> to just to see all of this. Yeah. I do want to nail down one thing. The Crow Nation, this takes place on the lands that they have negotiated for themselves, yes. right? Yes, it does. Is that in that Fort Laramie Treaty? So the Fort Laramie Treaty changes multiple times. <laughs> and, and so Crow Nation, one reason why they actually allied with the U.S. military in this instance was because Lakota Nation had been shoved into their territory by the advancing kind of, you know, westward expansion. So that's what I mean when I talk about, you know, the settler invasion really intensifies conflict and, and in some cases creates conflict where there wasn't before. This is what I really find enlightening about this particular event, because everything about this period of time is a chain reaction. It's one event leading to a sequence of other events. And in this case, it's very identifiable. You have this gold rush in 1874 and this incursion into native lands, which sets off the migration of Lakota out towards the west, which happens to be land that the Crow consider theirs. Now, this has gone on for centuries as well, these conflicts between these nations. And so now we have that happening again. And they've used now their new powerful ally, which is the U.S. military, to inflict themselves upon the Lakota. And it's this big table setting mm -hmm. for what is also going on, which is this reorganization of these nations. The U.S. military is out there trying to push these people onto reservations, right? Right. And it's important to remember that it's very easy kind of to look at this through, you know, I'm a settler. So through my understanding of territory and conflict and that sort of thing, you know, nations have been in conflict over territory since humans have been in North America, yeah. right? Since of time course. immemorial. But the very strict notion of boundary and defining land as something that you own rather than are in relation with, like, I mean, nations have been fighting over territory. Nations have very strict boundaries long before settlers set foot on the continent. But there was also, you know, a dynamic. It's not like staking out a plot of land and that's my land and that's your land. There was a notion that there is a boundary. You must be invited to cross this boundary. But in invitations happened because mm -hmm. Buffalo move. When the U.S. military stakes out the Treaty of Fort Laramie, okay, this is the land, and then we shrink it, you know, okay, this is the land that you're going to have. That wasn't how territory and boundaries worked in the Northern Plains at all. And so yep. in addition to these new people and these new confinements, there is also an attempt to impose an entirely new relationship with land. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're imposing the idea, sort of European idea of land use and land ownership onto these native nations. It's kind of a fluid idea over these many centuries they've existed there. The end game here is to literally put them onto reservations, a system that exists to this day, right? which flies completely in the face of the entire idea of their culture. So obviously they're pushing back against this. One of the weapons used against them is robbing them of their food source, which is the buffalo. But as a result, they become dependent on 
U.S. supplies, rations, and so forth, especially through the winter. But that's the idea, is to sort of play this chess game against them to get them onto these lands. It reminds me of many different real estate situations, you know, where you can't have moving rivers, you know, and washes and so forth. You have to channel them with concrete so that you can then properly divide up the land and sell it. The same thing's happening on a very big scale on the plains, yeah. where they're trying to be able to you know, plot this land out, create states, and then divide it all up into counties and, you know, all the stuff that happens that we're so used to. That's what's getting imposed upon them right now. So let's talk about the leadership of those nations. Famous names, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull. I mean, this is a real cast of characters, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And a cast of characters who've become caricatures in many ways. I'm working on this book and I found that I've had to write about these characters kind of in two different ways. One is what we know about the people themselves. Mm -hmm. So Sitting Bull as himself. And then one is the character Sitting Bull, which both was created by frontier newspaper reports, military dispatches, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, but then also embodied by the person Sitting Bull because it was a useful tool to seek what was best for his people, to step into this persona that was receiving such attention and then use that to get attention to the needs of the people that he was trying to care for. Had those trips back to Washington, D.C. happened at this point? Not yet. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's all after this. So Sitting Bull ends up in Canada for a little while and then returns, and then those trips happen. But he's not really the military leader of this, is he? It's more crazy horse than those folks. Yeah, and military leadership didn't work in quite the kind of regimented, you know, command officer way, which the newspapers reported it as though it did. This happens with a lot of conflicts, like the war with the Nez Perce. Chief Joseph emerges as this brilliant military strategist, and that also wasn't true. Not that Sitting Bull and Joseph weren't fighting and weren't skilled warriors, but the military style was much more improvisational, much less about direct command and strategy and things like that, which is why they were so effective. How did they get their supplies and the guns and ammunition? I've always wondered that. There's a robust trade network. They often bought from U.S. military suppliers and not illegally. There was a very robust trade because there was money to be made. And these weapons were also very effective in terms of hunting. We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. While you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. You're our best means for building our audience, and we are most grateful for the help. Thank you so much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's get to the battle itself. It is part of an incursion that is happening with a lot of columns. When you read about this, there are fantastic books written on the subject, but inevitably, I mean, even on Wikipedia, you can just fall asleep. I mean, it's an alphabet of companies and columns and so forth. Honestly, I have no idea how that even worked out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, moving through this with this supply chain. It's incredible. But we're talking singularly about Custer's company, basically, the 209 people who are eventually caught on that hillside. Let's sort of pull out from there and tell me about how this is all organized. So basically what happens, Terry sends Custer around. They get word from scouts that there is a large group somewhere in, in this very large region, somewhere encamped along the river. And so Terry goes one direction, sends Custer and the 7th a different direction. And Custer, insofar as anybody knows, has the orders, and this is where it gets very fuzzy, to find the encampment. Why were they there in the first place? What were they doing out there in June of 1876? Why here? So there had been uh, reports uh, because Nations were gathering for the summer encampment and running into settlers and miners, and also Crow Nation was feeling encroached upon. And so there had been reports sent to Fort Abraham Lincoln where they were stationed. And so that is why Terry goes out. His orders are to figure out what's going on. This is on the heels of, you know, Red Cloud's war just a few years before. And so they didn't want it to blow up into another massive conflict like that. Hmm. So they were looking to try to either diffuse or discourage, you know, a larger conflict because it was a, it was at risk of blowing into a multi-nation alliance, hmm. which would have been much more difficult for the cavalry to so this was a, an action being taken to sort of diffuse something larger, possibly brewing. Mm -hmm. I guess that had been kind of the system they'd come up with, I guess, in the seasons of campaigning. Let's take the wind out of this sail before it gets too crazy. There's so much mythology that is built up around all of this, largely a consequence of history written by the victors, even when they're writing about what is a dreadful loss here. How does Custer determine that he will be caught alone there? What are the events of these days? First of all, what days are we talking about? This is mid-June in 1876, right? Right, right. So the battle actually starts on June 25th. Mm. Custer's scouts tell him on the 24th that they've discovered a large camp. And according to reports, they tell him it's the biggest camp they've ever seen. Huge, huge number of people, uh, somewhere between 700 and 800 people are encamped along the river there. And Custer, again, this is where the, you know, gallons of ink <laughs> being spilled yeah. make everything very fuzzy. For whatever reason, Custer decides he needs to attack immediately rather than wait for Terry, send word back to General Terry, awaiting orders. Some people argue that Custer was told not to engage. Some people argue that he had the freedom to engage. And a lot of the conflict comes because Terry's own officers after the tragedy were mad at his first dispatch that did not question Custer's decision. And he sent a second dispatch, which reached Sherman and Sheridan at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. Mm. 
Sherman handed it to who he thought was an aide, but it was a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer. So all of a sudden, this becomes the big issue in the Mm. papers. Was Custer acting outside of orders? But regardless of why it was, it's very clear that he was trying to repeat his actions at the Washita. The Washita had been a success for him, both militarily and uh, in terms of public relations. And he was replicating his movements. He sent people up on a bluff, which doesn't make sense unless you're trying to capture the camp where the women and the children are. Numerous officers who served with him wrote about him discussing that strategy when engaging again and the success of that strategy. He wrote himself in My Life on the Plains about what a successful strategy that was to target women and children to end a battle Mm. quickly. And so it appears that that's what he was trying to do. And it appears that he did not believe the reports about the size of the encampment. Who was really calling the shots here in terms of creating the situation? I mean, there had been a gigantic gathering of Native nations here. Did they know what they were doing in terms of drawing attention and therefore maybe even drawing the U.S. forces into battle? I mean, they were absolutely aware, but this is a normal summer gathering. This is something Uh that happens ceremonially every year. And so it wasn't out of the ordinary for Mm. these nations to gather in this place and, you know, meet and spend time together, hunt, that sort of thing. This would be the Sundance situation, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This was the annual Sundance. Can you explain what that means? Because it plays a big, big part in this. So it's a religious ceremony that as a settler, I am not privy to and shouldn't be privy to. But it's a very important community religious ceremony that's held annually. And reports from this particular Sundance ceremony do say that Sitting Bull, who was a holy man, as well as a warrior and a leader, had a vision that they would be victorious against a large force. You know, it depends who you listen to about what the actual vision was, something about soldiers falling from their horses or grasshoppers falling to the ground. There are several different versions of it. I mentioned earlier, did a special on this whole event and at some point drove out to Deer Medicine Rocks, which is Mm. the kind of almost Stonehenge-like natural rock formation that sits on this private ranch a far distance from the Little Bighorn area. And that is supposedly where Sitting Bull went. I understood it to be by himself, that he would have had a singular experience there. And indeed, I was interviewing his great-great-grandson, who was a lovely man, who took me to the rocks, and we looked at the sides of the rocks. And sure enough, there are these carvings of upside-down soldiers, you know, <laughs> the stick figures coming down from above. Who knows if that's, you know, been added to by later generations. You don't know how this really worked. But supposedly, that's exactly what happened, is that he had this vision that they would be victorious. I guess then took that vision back to the gathering, to the community there, and told them, thumbs up, I suppose. Let's let's try this. Crazy Horse fascinates me. He's more of the, I guess, military leader, if you will say that, or that would be my term for it. Also, Lakota has been, I suppose, fighting these wars for a long time at this point, and he is the organizer of this reaction to the troops coming in here. It's really a story of bad reconnaissance, isn't it, on the U.S. side of things? <laughs> they just don't know how many people they're dealing with, what are the forces at hand? They're looking in the wrong places. They're making judgment calls that are based on on shaky intelligence. I mean, the scouts say they told them. <laughs> the oh, really? scouts warned them, right? Interesting. Yeah. And I think it's really important also to remember that, you know, regardless of how it started, what Custer attempted was a genocidal act. Mm. And so if we remember this battle in any way, we really need to remember it as the successful thwarting of an attempted act of genocide. It's so interesting. I mean, you're right. It's so hard as your average white guy American to remember that there's a track that you get right on when you're talking about this. You know, I'm guilty Mm -hmm. of it, of falling into that pattern of viewing this from one side only and forgetting that this was 
actually something we were causing in the situation for sure. Well, and our whole narrative is is oriented that way, right? We we talk about Native American history as though it's a minor thread inside US history. But yep. in reality, US history occurs within the larger story of Native America. When we invert that narrative, then conflict with indigenous people in our past becomes, you know, overcoming barriers to westward expansion. So Native Americans are cast purely as a barrier when that yep. could not be more inaccurate. Oh no, and there's an enormous matrix of circumstance here that's working against these people and, mm -hmm. you know, breaking promises, breaking treaties. You know, at this point, people will see this as cliche. I see, I could feel a certain segment of the audience rolling their eyes. Oh boy, here we go again, talking about this like that again. I'm sorry. This is just a fair game conversation on some level. Yeah. And that is what I find enlightening to say, you know, I get it. This is like really clear to me how this happens and therefore how the history unfolds through it. So, so Custer takes off on his own. He's given the chance to go a little slower by taking a much more formidable weapon with him, which would be a Gatling gun. But he says, no, I'm going to take that unit because I want to move fast in this way that he had done, that he'd already made famous for himself, right? Right, right, exactly. And as a result, takes hundreds of men with him and they land on this particular area of Big Horn. It's so amazing to stand out there because it's so wide open. You don't know how they made their choices. Like, where is there a place to find any kind of position? It's really weird. They finally just get sort of battled back to this hillside. And that's right. where his famous last stand. It's a series of blunders. Initially, Reno orders a charge and then realizes that his men are charging into a marsh and that's not ideal. And so he has to halt and regroup. Both Benteen and Reno get cut off from Custer and his companies. There's a lot of debate as to whether Benteen refused to relieve Custer in revenge for Custer leaving an officer on the battlefield or so-called battlefield at the Washita. Benteen swears he didn't, but then again, he's the only one alive to defend himself. There's a lot of drama, a lot of controversy around some very serious mistakes. Another thing that is kind of strange is Custer reshuffled the mounts in his companies. There was a practice called coloring the unit where you would have everyone in company A rides a black horse and everyone in company B rides a bay and everyone in company C rides a gray. And he reshuffled them, which may not have had much difference, but about 20% of his troops were greenhorns. And so that's an interesting strategy when you're fighting a superior cavalry force to do that right ahead of that. There's a lot going on. <laughs> In your resume, you have, I noticed you're an expert in talking about the equine element of all of this. It's a fascinating sidebar of this conversation is how the horse played such a big part in these Plains Wars, right? Absolutely. You know, anyone who's ridden a horse knows they don't do what you say every time, no matter how well trained they are. And I've always been fascinated that that never comes up in battles. So mm. I've been trying to see if I can reach into animal behavior studies and indigenous sources and kind of older traditions of equestrianism and see if I can understand the battle from the horse's point of view. Yeah. and if that tells us anything else. The last stand is not the climactic event that it's portrayed to be. There's a huge amount of stuff that happens after the fact, but let's talk about that particular moment. It's all of a half an hour by some accounts. I mean, it's a lot of people. This is hundreds of people that are stuck on this hillside. Some of them break off and try to make a run for it. Eventually, Custer himself is caught on that hillside with, I suppose, about 50 guys around him or so. And they are one by one, absolutely wiped out. Everyone is killed except for this one guy, an Italian guy named Giovanni Martino. 
Right. <laughs> who then becomes John Martin, who's the only source of information except for later accounts from Native Americans. Absolutely. And notably among those killed is a newspaper correspondent who is embedded, Mark Kellogg. And his death actually sets off an absolute firestorm in the local papers, the Bismarck Tribune, St. Paul Pioneer Press, places like this, openly calling for genocide of all Native Americans because of the death of their colleague. And a colleague who most of them didn't seem to like very much ahead of time. But got a lionized after his death. Uh, his dispatches, you know, once his journal was found, were published posthumously and to great acclaim. Tell me how the story plays out in the press. What becomes a mythology, really, first appears to Americans. I mean, the mythology starts from the very beginning. Yeah. These local papers are the first to pick it up. And just because of the way, you know, wire service worked at the time, it takes a little while for the news to reach east. People initially think it's a, a sick prank. Like, there's no way Custer has been killed. There's right. no way the 7th Cavalry is gone, basically. But once the dispatches get there and people realize that this has happened, it's a really huge deal. You know, your dailies like the New York Herald run with it. You know, your illustrated newspapers like Harper's Weekly and Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper run with it. But it doesn't actually take up as much oxygen in the room as you would think at the time. Mm -hmm. Settlers, particularly back east, are really shocked that Native nations have this kind of military power. No one in the West is shocked about this because they're very aware of that. But the conversation really becomes about the personality of Custer and whether he was self-aggrandizing and got all his men killed against orders or whether he valiantly died in defense of democracy. You know, the camps are going back and forth. And his widow, Elizabeth Custer, immediately jumps in Mm. on this conversation. She partners with a man named Frederick Whitaker. And within the year, remember the battle happens in June, by the end of 1876, they have published a book about Custer, the last two chapters of which are a detailed defense of his actions at Mm. this battle. And Elizabeth Custer really becomes probably the earliest reason why Custer looms so large. She promotes her husband's memory relentlessly. Ironically, she did not want him remembered as a, you know, kind of quote, Indian fighter. She wanted him remembered as a Civil War hero. Mm. But she relentlessly promoted his valiant efforts and his centrality to the history of this period. And she lived well into the 1920s. Yeah, exactly. It went on a long time. Yeah. There's the first one, 1876 bestseller you're talking about, A Popular Life of General Custer, which she writes with Frederick Whitaker. And then there's a memoir, Boots and Saddles in 1885. This goes on. One can't forget that we're talking about 1876, which is the 100th anniversary, the centennial of America. I mean, this is a big deal time. There's a huge exposition in Philadelphia. Everybody in the world is talking about this. This is the first of many such, you know, expositions, fairs, these uh, nation celebrations that are going to go on. And then right smack in the center stage of this is this incredible event that really just pulls a lot of people into it. It's amazing. Veterans use the whole thing as a way of making a case for better pensions. I mean, it really, everybody starts to hang their hats on this thing, right? Yeah, that was the most surprising thing that I found. I did not set out to write a history of veterans' efforts (laughs) necessarily. (laughs) But as I was researching this book, I kept running into the fact that it was not even just the officers, right? There there are multiple veterans organizations. One is the Order of the Indian Wars, which is like your General Howard, you know, Miles, all these big names in the history of the West belong to this, but it's more a ceremonial kind of fraternal order. But it's these on the ground organizations like the United Indian War Veterans of the United States that are really their bread and butter is trying to get stories in local newspapers so that communities will write to members of Congress to support pensions 
abortion bills. There was a huge push in 1916 because these wars, they were technically undeclared. Mm. They fell between the Civil War and the Spanish-American War and then later World War One. And so they were watching these other veterans, some of whom, you know, they were veterans of these other wars as well, some mm -hmm. of them. But they were watching the Grand Army of the Republic get their pensions. The Spanish-American War veterans get these pensions. And because a, a huge number of these veterans weren't even technically enlisted, they had signed in as volunteers or under the quartermaster's salary or something like that, they were not given the same rights as veterans, as their colleagues in these other wars. And so there's a real kind of paranoia about being forgotten and, and a huge grassroots effort. They even published their own newspaper called The Winners of the West for a number of decades, just telling stories to try to catch the public attention, to try to get a public relations campaign rolling so that they can petition Congress for pensions, access to veterans' homes, and that sort of thing. And that's really where, you know, Elizabeth Custer's efforts aside, that's where the Custer myth really takes off because he is the most well-known, it's the most well-known battle, and they completely capitalize on that. I've always wanted to ask someone who knows how much of an equivalent of, say, the abolition movement existed back East for Native nations. Were white Americans, you know, speaking out? Was there protests about how they were being treated? How much perspective was there? Yes, absolutely. There was a fairly robust effort to advocate for the rights of Native people that was joined by white people, but also Native advocates advocated for themselves in their own communities. There there were organizations, uh, they, they usually called themselves things like the Indian Friends Association and things like that. And it's complicated because, you know, this is a period, not that we're free of this mentality in, in our time either. This is a period when the notion was that assimilation was the best thing for yeah. Native people. So there was this idea that the problem with Native American settler relations was that Native Americans were culturally Native American. And yeah. so this is where we get the boarding school era where, you know, the, the famous phrase, kill the Indian to save the child, is kind of the governing ethos of education systems, incredibly brutal, deadly systems. But there are organizations organizing against this military machine being turned on indigenous people. It was particularly the 1877 war with Nez Perce Nation that shifted a lot of public opinion, but that public opinion was moving in that direction early on. It's called Custer's Last Stand, but many people think of this as a last stand for those native nations. I mean, in mm -hmm. terms of their being not freely moving, but at least moving about, or at least fighting to move about. After this period, maybe not immediately, but we swiftly move towards these nations ending up on reservations, which is where we are today. I mean, mm -hmm. this happens over a period of about 10 years, I suppose. And Sitting Bull is another story, but that's a whole chapter in this, how he moves people to Canada and then that doesn't go well or as well as he hoped and so forth. It's a really sad chapter of this entire culture finally losing capacity to exist. Yeah. And, and you know, again, it's complicated, right? Native culture, for lack of a better term, right? We're talking about 562 federally recognized, incredibly diverse nations, right? When yeah. we use that one term, right? But if you look at the indigenous history of this continent, it is a history of adaptation and dynamic growth. And so as the U.S. military machine organizes more effectively against uh, these nations, strategies shift. Gerald Visner, a scholar, has coined the term survivance, which I think is a really good term to keep in mind when we're talking about this, because it's easy 
easy to fall into the myth of the vanishing Indian, yes. right? The notion that our textbooks teach sure. Native American history stops in 1890 at Wounded Knee, but it doesn't, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. right? People fighting Comanche Nation down in Texas yeah. in the 1890s would be very surprised to hear that. Sure. No, I hasten to add that I'm talking about a way of life that had been established for all those centuries. And that was what this is a la sort of a last stand towards. Of course, it moves on. And just as in other avenues of American life, there's joy there. There's a, a thriving culture that changes and, and adapts and, and switches up. It is very dangerous to fall into that trap of looking at this as, oh, those poor people, you know, even though that might be a kind sentiment, it also colors it wrongly. It writes people off. And again, it's equally dangerous to undersell the administrative state-sponsored destruction yeah. of this particular way of life, targeted destruction of it. So it, it's a hard balance. <laughs> There are so many examples within it. We forgot to even talk about this. The word Sioux, for example, yes. back in the nomenclature discussion we were having. Sioux is a pejorative term that was created by the Ooh. French. I believe it translates roughly to snake or some sort of lowly, you know, animal or something like that. It was is a way of projecting upon them this sort of low life kind of thing. And that's just a, a great example of how completely clueless where, you know, most Americans would say, oh, that's a lovely word that refers to those beautiful people out there. No, completely not. Right. It's a complete insult. And yet here we are today, you know, thinking we're being respectful, we're actually using the insulting word. And because our laws are created in certain times and, you know, recognition was created in, in historical moments, it's the official legal name of the nation. Well, the story of the monument itself is a good one in terms of the change up of what's gone on. There's an evolution in the storytelling that's really something to be pleased about. It's just the beginning. It's a constant progression. And good people such as yourself are the big story behind this, where people are on all sides are trying to reframe this conversation and teaching people like me to think <laughs> twice about how they speak of it and think of it. So I really am grateful for your wisdom and your expertise and the ongoing effort you're making. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And I hope that anybody who found this interesting, you know, takes seriously the fact that it's getting very hard to teach these hard truths in our schools and will advocate for that at the local level. Dr. Marshall is an assistant professor of history and affiliate faculty with Native American Studies at Illinois State University and remind people of an important forthcoming book that is coming out. The book that she's written called Teaching Us to Forget, The Wars of Westward's Expansion, U.S. History, Education, and Public Memory, 1870 to 1995. It explores the construction of memory about the wars the U.S. waged against Native nations in the late 19th century. It's very important stuff. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. I appreciate it. Thanks. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.